Welcome to the Expert PK and Newbie Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Expert PK and Newbie Podcast, a podcast where each week we read a passage of the Bible together, we unpack it, we discuss it, getting the three different perspectives from three different people. Now we're back from a from a little break, and as mm. you can see, we're doing another uh, remote recording this time, and so hopefully we've improved the audio quality, and we've just we're slowly with each each recording that we do, we slowly work out all the kinks so we can get the best product possible for for everyone. So hopefully this time um, it sounds and looks even even better. How are you guys going? We've been on a we've been on a bit of a from our end we've been on a bit of a break mid mid season break, and it's actually really exciting to come to come back into it. Yeah, I mean, part of that mid-season break was my fault. Uh, <laughs> church work got very busy. I went on a short-term mission trip, had a youth camp, and now trying to put together a term four program for our youth ministry. Mm. Also preaching on Sunday, which I didn't realize when I agreed to this recording date, <laughs> but that's okay. Been a very, very busy, busy season, but a really, really excellent season for me. And now we're back and I'm excited to be back. Oh, good. How are you, Morgan? Yeah, I'm good. Just um, I went to Noosa for a week in the break, and I also went on a young adults church retreat, which was really cool. Mm. Um, down the coast, so right. yeah, just being busy, same being busy. working, living. <laughs> <laughs> good stuff. <laughs> no, it's good. It's good. How about you, Josh? Good, good. It's funny when it's like because it's break, you immediately think, oh, it's meant to be relaxing. It's meant to be, you know, are oh, we taking time off recording so that we can, you know, regroup and recuperate? Now I've just been real busy working. It's just all the <laughs> other side of of my life then kicks in. You're like, oh, hang on, I've got all this time now, and you sort of commit yourself to more things, and up until the point where you're like, no, we need to settle, settle things back down to 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 do this again. But mm. no, it's been it's been good. It's been able we've been able to do some a bit more behind the scenes work as we sort of said previously. Um just getting it all out there. Uh just working out more of the sort of the recording technical side of things. It's been um no, it's been really it's been really good. And it's been really encouraging. I've had a couple of people come up to me saying that they've we had the seventh episode come out mm-hmm. and then it got to the next week and they're like, Josh I've missed I've missed the next episode and <laughs> Where's I, I, episode eight? I, I don't know I and they they knew they knew that it was um that we were taking a short break and like I just didn't have anything to listen to whilst I was at the gym or whatever they whatever they were doing and so that's really nice to hear that they miss it and that they that they're really keen to hear the next episode so that's very encouraging and thank you for all your feedback that you, you give us it's great to great to hear yeah, so it's a it's a big one. So do we want to just crack into crack into it? Yes, we have chosen a lot of the Bible to read this week because it is a fairly self-contained chunk of Matthew, but it is a big chunk. So we're reading chapters 14, 15, 16, and 17. Today's passage comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 14 to 17. Hopefully you have read these chapters in preparation. If not, please pause now and read those chapters. In this extended section of narrative, we read about the death of John the Baptist. Meanwhile, Jesus makes it clear through his words and deeds that he is the Messiah. However, the nature of this Messiahship is that Jesus too will suffer and die. Well, it's been a while since either we or our listeners have Mm. dived into Matthew. So maybe it's helpful to go what has come before this huge chunk of scripture. Yes, I was. If anyone remembers. Well, before we. Beforehand, in our last episode, we were looking at all the parables mm. uh, and all the sort of the teachings of of Jesus. And I think this bit now nicely flows on from that because most of the parables are about sort of 
the separation of different viewpoints about Jesus and how there's becoming increasing polarization in people's views of Jesus. And now we see all of those parables in action in these stories as people have very different responses to Jesus. And immediately we get um, in chapter 14 one one viewpoint about um, about about Jesus and who Jesus might be. Mm. Um being the reincarnation of our boy John. Ah, uh, nice to have him back. That's <laughs> <laughs> for it. Yeah, he's he's popped up again, hasn't he? As we keep saying, he's not the gospel author John. No. <laughs> or the other writer John. He's John the Baptist. Yeah, every two or three episodes, he pops back into the story. We get to talk about him a little bit, but I uh, suspect this will be the last time we chat about John the Baptist. <laughs> and why is why is that? <laughs> Why is that, Morgan? Why is this the last time we're going to talk about John? He gets his head cut off. Off with his. Well, head. you could have said that a bit more <laughs> kindly or sensitively. Loses his head. <laughs> it's a pretty wild story, mm. um, especially, and it's interesting. It's it's sort of giving that context to why they thought Jesus was the must be the risen John the Baptist. Because you read that first, and you're like. Hang on, what what do you mean the risen John the Baptist? And then mm. sort of you read you read further, and uh, I don't know about the different translations, but on this way on this one, if we sort of skip ahead, it, it's quite brutal. It's like I want his head on a on a tray. Yep. <laughs> like, Whoa! All right, from a mm. from what seems to be the the king's daughter. Yes. Yeah, my version says prompted by her mother, mm. give me John the Baptist's head here on a platter. Mm. <laughs> We've got to remember that John the Baptist was really anti the marriage of Herod and Herodias. Got to go with Herodias. Herodias. Um, So John was really anti their marriage because Herodias was originally married to Herod's brother, Philip, and then Mm. both Herod and Philip divorced their wives so that Herod could marry Herodias. And Uh. so it got messy real fast and John was very outspoken in his criticism of that situation. Mm. And this is a, sort of some like Game of Thrones level of drama that's taking place. Of we've got all these sort of the dramaticness of of the different sort of the breaking up of marriages and all these mm. different things between kings and um, people of power, and then someone coming in, and then their their execution for for their views. It's quite you know, especially for the sub maybe sort of the the gospels. It's very. Um, I, I I sort of feel like this is very like Old Testament stuff. It's the political intrigue that suddenly mm. pops in. And yeah. to make it worse, when Herod divorced his first wife, a civil war actually started because oh. his wife's father got really annoyed at that and he was the king of Petra. And so suddenly there was a little bit of a uh, civil war moment that mm. happened. Um, it's probably important to point out that this is not the Herod we met in chapter two who uh, killed yeah. all the babies in Bethlehem, but this is his son. Mm. So that Herod has died, and now his son uh, is ruling in his place. Now, now, sort of thinking about why are we getting like why is this included in here? We've 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 seen John the Baptist beforehand. We've seen him baptizing, and then in jail, and his sort of doubtingness and his struggles there. And now we're getting given his death, and it sort of begs the question of like, well, why why include this? Why why do we need this bit of information? Um, but they could have, it could have just been put a nice bow around it, you know, things like, things like this or people's people dying happens all the time. Mm. Um, it's just another, like another bit of, another bit of history, but to include it in sort of the gospels, um, so prominently 
why is it relevant to us as the readers reading this now today? Any any guesses before I make my guess? I mean, I'm sure, lucky you know. But <laughs> I have thoughts. Of <laughs> You've course. got your thoughts, but Morgan? No, I'm not sure. Fair enough. My thoughts is that clearly in the time period where this gospel was being written, the thoughts about Jesus being an incarnated John the Baptist, sorry, reincarnated John the Baptist, was very strong. So we see beginning of 14 that this is a real option people are talking about. We see in chapter 16 that we're about to reach that it's again presented as a real option. So I think dealing with John is important, but then also John's identity and role as the Elijah who was going to come before Jesus has come up a few times and again will come up in chapter 17. And so both of those reasons alone, I think, are strong enough reasons to need to conclude the story of John the Baptist well. I, I agree. And it's that sort of, um, if I think of like a sort of for those writers out there, a three-act structure of introduction, sort of the rise and fall, and then their sort of redemption. And it's sort of, it's putting that uh Wrapping up that that story and putting a nice sort of a nice sort of bow. I mean, kind of, like kind of nice, but it's it's wrapping up that story of of John. For it us. concludes it, even it concludes if it's sort of a nice conclusion for yeah. John himself. Yeah. The question I had is, he was meant to um, represent or be Elijah. Did Elijah die in a similar fashion, or is there any connection between um, the death of Elijah or? Is it just this? This is just what happened to John. Yeah, no, Elijah didn't actually die. So mm. he's one of those few biblical characters that is sort of carried off into heaven um, rather than actually dying. And so there's a few others that do it. We have Enoch, we have Jesus himself post resurrection, um, but he's sort of taken off into heaven, which is why I think the expectation is that he would return because he doesn't actually have a death story in the Bible. So they go and report to Jesus that John has died. And in verse 13, when Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Um, we find out in Luke's gospel that he actually went intentionally outside of the territory of Herod. Mm. And so I think that is a nice little link to show how the story is progressing is Jesus is told about the death of John the Baptist. And one of his first actions is to therefore flee the area or leave the area where the person who killed John the Baptist is reigning, mm. which sort of sets the scene for what is about to happen. Now, is that out of lament, mourning, fear for, or mourning for John, but maybe fear that if Herod's going around doing these things, there might be a fear that Jesus might uh, find himself in a similar position or similar fate? We are not told his motivations. We're mm. simply told that the moment he found out, he withdrew by boat privately. Just fair enough. I mean, if I find out that someone someone died, that you, your own actions are your actions. I found it really interesting reading this story, the feeding of the 5,000 after this, as like I see it as a reminder that even after everything that happens, like nothing is ever too much of a big effort or big deal for Jesus to do. Like he had that happen and in – Verse 13, it says um, this place is deserted and it's already late. So after that kind of day he's had, he still performs something like this. And I found it really cool. Yeah, for sure. Mm. Um, this story mm. of feeding the 5,000 is uh, the only miracle of Jesus that appears in all four Gospels. Mm. 
Sorry, fun mm. facts with Auckland. <laughs> is that like this was so clearly so significant. 5,000 men got fed, which means you're probably looking at fifteen to 20,000 people if you include women and children. Of mm. This is a significant miracle in the eyes of the people and of his disciples who then wrote it all down. Yeah, I was wondering about that where it says in line in 21, it says now those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. So I was like, do the women and children not eat? Or No, I think they ate. It's just they weren't counted, which means the number is a lot higher than 5,000 mm. that ate. Yeah. Morgan, have you read this story previously? Because I feel like the, 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 the dividing up of loaves of bread and fish is one of those, in my own experience, a very common story, especially growing up. Sunday school and all that. It's one of those very common stories and very easy to illustrate. Um, how uh, familiar have you been with uh, the feeding of the 5,000? I definitely have heard of it. And I used to think that that Christianity symbol of that fish that some people had on their cars, like <laughs> stickers and stuff. Yep. I always thought that that fish was from because of this story as like a symbol. Um, but I've definitely heard of it as one of the miracles, but I didn't know in good detail. I knew that it was like a small amount of food that went quite far. That's kind of the extent of what I knew. But, yeah, I always associated that fish that I used to see on cars <laughs> to this. Fair enough. Like it's one of the most famous fish stories in the Bible, so it's not, <laughs> not a bad assumption having no other context. <laughs> I'm just always impressed by the amount of leftovers there are. Like you start mm. with five loaves, so just like small little loaves that kind of one person alone could eat, and then mm. two's fish, and suddenly you're feeding thousands of people and you have 12 baskets left over. Like, it's quite an impressive miracle. I would, I would love to have that many leftovers because, you, you know, it's each, each day you've got something, <laughs> something, something to eat. But I, I would imagine that the, then those leftovers might have been distributed continu- continually out. Maybe. Don't Maybe. It's, yeah, it's one of those things that we, we just don't know. But is this, as well as the literal thing that's taking place here, is it? Is it also one of those metaphor of Jesus um, sort of illustrating the point of he's being he's feeding these people physically, but his his way, his um, sort of his teachings, um, and just his um, just our belief in him is also nourishing to us. And then is that is that a metaphor I could sort of pull out of that or in Matthew's gospel that is never stated or hinted at. But in John's gospel, mm. after this miracle, Jesus gets up and teaches the crowd and declares, I am the bread of life. Mm. And so Jesus directly relates his miracle to then his teachings about how he is the only source of nourishment people should want or need. And so I think that element is there to see. I think it's a very fair thing to put on the text, but Matthew doesn't draw that out. As we move to uh, Jesus walking on water, it's probably also important to point out that in John's gospel, as soon as Jesus does this big miracle, the people are like, wow, this guy is fantastic. Let's make him our king. Let's try and force him into political leadership. And it's for that reason in John's gospel that Jesus and his disciples then leave across the lake because he's trying to leave this group of people who have decided that Jesus now must be a political figure. Mm. And so while, again, Matthew doesn't spell that out, it's helpful to keep in mind that that is probably the reason why, having done this grand miracle, they then get back in their boat, the disciples are always in their boat, and head back across the lake. And that context is always uh, quite quite helpful. And especially as as I think we'd say it, I uh, 
time and time again. A lot of people, uh, there was this, there was a lot of turmoil. There was a lot of the oppression by the Roman Roman people, um, by the Roman government that was that was there. Uh, lots of sort of, if, if Jesus is also coming out to the fringes of society for there for the Jewish Jewish people, it, you know, I too would have at the time would have thought like, no, we we need you to be sort of in in and amongst these more political things so that you can be there for us because aren't you meant to be there for us? Isn't and if that's and if that's what you know as well, yeah, you would all be like, no, fight f- fight for us, Jesus. Like we're you know fight for fight for what um we our rights and what we need. And he is, but just not in the way everyone expected. Yeah, I think when reading this story. I feel like it's a bit of a relatable story for a lot of people when when it comes to even faith or praying, like where it says, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. It's like asking for proof and asking for like a sign or something to do. But Peter kind of does it to show faith in God. That's why he does it. So I think it's it's like when I think I spoke a few episodes about, about the prayer walk, I was like asking for a sign or something. But the, Lord, if it's you, I've definitely done that before like asked for something and then done it and been shocked. Christians often argue about whether Peter's actions here are meant to be imitated or meant to be ridiculed. And so curious mm. as to whether there's, I'm, I'm going to just assume Morgan's answer is imitated, given that you said this yeah. is something you've done. Um, yeah. But do you want to elaborate any more about whether you think this is definitely something we're meant to imitate or not? It's almost like prove me wrong, like a bit, I don't know. I still think it's something that, yeah, imitated, not, I'm not sure. Josh, do you have any opinions? As a kid, I definitely <laughs> tried to imitate this. I definitely was above a pool, <laughs> put my foot out, <laughs> either said a little prayer or like, all right, let's, let's, all right, God, let's do this. And then you just <laughs> fall into the water. Um, so as, 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 as a kid, you've, I've, I've done that version, but I've never, I've never thought of this, and especially recently, I've never thought of it as a, um, as a ridicule, hmm. yeah, I've never, I've never had that thought and thought of it th- that way. It's always been sort of maybe more the, the imitate, or maybe it's a little, or maybe I've just never thought of it as rid- ridicule, but I've thought of it in more the sense of a little bit of both of having that faith to step out to Jesus, hmm. but also your lack of faith will sink you. Um, mm. And I think that's why some people think it should be ridiculed, is because mm. Peter ultimately fails. He sinks below the water. Mm. But I think verse 31 sort of settles the debate in a sense is Jesus says, why did you doubt? Mm. Like he doesn't criticize him for asking to step out. He doesn't criticize him for taking that step and walking a few steps on these raging waters. Mm. His question is, why then did you doubt and not be able to see this through? Yeah. And I think Mm. we are therefore meant to do the same. We're meant to Mm. try and step out in faith. And when it doesn't go well, that's not because we weren't doing the right thing. It's because we started to doubt. We got distracted by the winds and the wave. Mm. I wonder if Peter tried it again. I wonder if just on his own, if he just was like, <laughs> oh, do you reckon I could? <laughs> Later on when Noah's watching, he just goes for a walk on the lake. <laughs> it's like that classic thing of like when, when someone gets struck by lightning, it's like, do I have superpowers now? And then after this big moment, they worship him. I think they're really starting to figure mm. out who Jesus is. Like the whole first half of the book of Matthew is really about figuring out who Jesus is up to the climax of chapter 16, which we'll reach very soon. But they're already worshipping him. So I think they have figured it out. They just haven't said it yet. So it, it's interesting that the, to that point, it's like you really are the son of God. Mm. Have they ever, expl- ex- after all the other miracles that he's done, 
is it really this one that they've then that's the the real turning point? I mean, I I come from this background of like have, like being able to read all of this and knowing who Jesus is, but it's a bit bewildering, bewildering to to sort of go, is it they really then at this point go, yes, he is the Son of God, with despite all the other things that he's done. The disciples are notoriously slow to get it. Mm. And we will actually find that out next episode because as I was prepping for next episode, Jesus literally teaches on something at the beginning of the chapters we'll look at. And then by the end of the chapters, the disciples are completely ignored it and uh, haven't quite understood what Jesus is doing. So Mm. I think they've slowly been realizing it the whole way through. But I think at this moment, they actually were fearing for their lives whether mm. from the storm or whether from the fact that they thought a ghost was approaching. And so out of that fear and that wonder of being saved from both, mm. worship was their only appropriate response. Yeah, that out of sort of that initial shock, if you will. That's their response. And then they reach the other side of the lake um, and they're actually back in the territory of Herod. And rather than laying low, Jesus is straight into healing a whole bunch of people. In fact, all it took was touching the edge of his cloak in verse 36 and people were totally healed. And so he doesn't uh, take long to become center of attention again after leaving for just a little while. This is um, coming back to sort of very brutal Jesus. It almost, it, it feels, like when I read it, it feels like he's like, sc- Jesus is screaming. I'm not quite screaming, but like angrily yelling at um, who is it, the Pharisees and, and the teachers and sort of really ripping into them, you know, like you hypocrites. And then... I mean, verse 12 then says, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? So everything Jesus has just said to the Pharisees at the beginning of chapter 15 has been offensive. Mm. I mean, it's probably worth summarizing exactly what happens here. The tradition that the disciples are breaking is that they don't wash their hands before they eat. And so the Pharisees approach Jesus and they're like, oi, you're the rabbi of these disciples, which means you're sort of responsible for their life and their theology. And they're not doing one of our traditions that we always think is important, which is washing your hands thoroughly. The reason Jesus doesn't think it's a big deal, though, is that it's a tradition. Like, it's not taught in the Old Testament. It's not a law. It's something that a priest would have to do according to the Old Testament law, but not something that everyone else had to do on a regular occurrence. And then we get Jesus being brutal because he's like, yeah, we don't follow these man-made traditions, but you guys don't follow the law of God Mm. about honoring your parents and it and you know it's it it's harsh but but necessary and it's something that's also very necessary for these days because uh, i feel from my own experience a lot of churches get caught up in their own traditions that they make mm. um or even just traditions that surround different denominations and uh different tra- uh, all these different things that either get get passed passed down it's like that classic story of uh, the last of this church, the last, the last hymn that they would sing, they would turn to the right of the church and they would sing the hymn. And you would ask them, why do you do this? And no one would have the answer to it. Like, I don't know. We've just always done it this way. Mm. Yeah, okay. And they would just, and they would, all, they, every Sunday without fail, last hymn, they would turn to the right and they would sing the song. It then later came out that the reason why they actually did it was because the lyrics to that hymn were painted on the right side wall of the church. <laughs> but over time, it had faded and then been painted over. But they were so used to this practice that they would do it almost religiously. And and people would complain about, like, well, you, we should be turning to the right. And you're like, well, but that's, like, why? 
Well, and it's it's the same here. We have these little bits of man-made traditions that we put um, that we put to the same level of God that can, as as we find here, can just hinder our relationship with God or just get in the way. And yet, even our generation really falls for it. Having mm. joined a new church in the last two years, one of the the common phrases I get when I question things is, "Oh, we always do it that way," mm. and like that's from peers of our age. It's just the expectation is it's always easier to just follow what is always being done. It is. And 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 we like a good tradition too. I quite enjoy even just to think about it like if you have like a Christmas tradition that you do with yes. with friends, family, uh whoever it might be. We we enjoy the comforts that tradition provides us. Mm. Um there is there's in saying all this sort of maybe negative stuff. There is also uh, um a comforting and positive to tradition, but then we got to be careful for it not to take over and take over God's God's word. And Jesus is about to go a lot further when he questions even their food laws, which is like the highest held tradition they possibly have because he's about to point out that what you eat is not what makes you unclean but uncleanness comes from the heart. And this is a lesson that the the early church really struggled with. God reveals to Peter in Acts 10 that the church no longer has to follow the Jewish food laws. And this like freaks Peter out and he takes a while to come to terms with it. But Jesus is setting the scene, setting the groundwork for a wider array of people in God's kingdom by removing one of the biggest barriers, which is the food laws. And so while... He doesn't do it super explicitly here. I mean, the Pharisees already hate him for enough reasons. He doesn't need to throw out the food laws yet. He sets the scene for it by explicitly saying that you're not unclean by what you eat. You're unclean because of what comes out of you. I really like after that where it says, uh, listen and understand it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. It's that intention behind what you're, what you're doing. It's coming from... From from within, like like it's saying, from 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 your heart. And the Pharisees clearly were very unclean out of their hearts. Mm. In fact, Jesus in verse thirteen, to link it back to last episode, he talks about how the Pharisees are going to be pulled out of the garden because they were not planted by the Father. And that is exactly the parable of the wheat and the weeds mm. that we looked at last episode. As I said, this section of Matthew's gospel is really just putting into action and displaying the application of the parables we just looked at, which is why we want to cover all these verses together because it's really showing that division but also those parables in action. There's a lot less hiding of Jesus's actions as we go through this. There's a lot less hiding, especially just with the, the feeding of the five and then as we come up to it, 4,000 different healings and stuff. It's a bit more overt. It's sort of reading at this point rather than he, Jesus always saying, now don't tell anyone about this. Yeah, Jesus continues to walk that line of big mm. public displays of power followed by moments of revelation to his close disciples where he tells them not to reveal that yet. Because mm. in both chapter 16 and 17, his disciples are going to have all the evidence they ever need for Jesus' identity, and they're going to be told to keep it quiet until he rises from the dead. And then I guess we continue our journey, which is uh, Jesus again changes location, was in a Jewish area where Herod was ruling, and now again, in verse 21, he leaves that place and he heads back into Gentile territory. So he's just back and forth the whole time in these mm. few chapters. Always on the move. I mean, but he was always he was always on the move. Mm. There was there was no home that he really stayed in. The Son of Man has no place to call home. That was a previous episode. It was. What is a Gentile woman? A Gentile is just anyone who is non-Jewish. Pretty broad term. Um, mm. In fact, this thing actually says a Canaanite woman in uh, the NIV translation. 
which is interesting because that's a very common Old Testament word because the Canaanites are those who inhabited the promised land, so Israel, before Israel rocked up. But this is the only time it appears in the New Testament as like Mm. a specific people group to show that the Canaanites were still around. There was a viral TikTok about a year or so ago Ah. that talked about this very passage and a progressive pastor was on the TikTok and said that this passage was proof that Jesus was a racist. So uh, (laughs) thoughts, thoughts on the table, whether that is something that we should probably deal with now. What? Like why and how? (laughs) Like where where on earth does... Yeah, where do they pull that from? Yeah. I mean, when you when you first said TikTok, I'm like, okay, here we go. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not exactly the source of all wisdom and truth, is it? No, you always have to sort of like, hmm. We do have the story here of a Canaanite woman coming to Jesus, leading with him for healing, and then initially he rejects her. He calls her a dog, which was uh, a Jewish slang word for non-Jews. And then eventually, after she pesters enough, he compliments her faith and grants her request. And this vile TikTok basically said Jesus ignored her because he was racist. Then when she kept pushing, realized that he was wrong, repented, and Mm. performed the miracle, which doesn't sit right with the Jesus I think we've encountered in the rest of Matthew. No. Because this Mm. is the same Jesus that when it came to the Roman official that he met earlier on in the Gospel of Matthew, the centurion, he healed that man's son instantly. Mm. And he was also a foreigner. It also doesn't line up with the Jesus we're about to see in feeding the 4,000 because the 4,000 he's about to feed are actually Gentiles. He's now in a Gentile area. Mm. So the feeding of the 5,000 was Jewish people, but the feeding of the 4,000 are Gentile people. And so there's got to be more going on here than... Jesus being a racist, then repenting. Now, I have heard this commentary before in terms of the the dog and the slang, the slang uh, of it, and and the, that now it's sort of ringing more bells about the debate of of all that. Um, to outright say, yeah, he was a racist, and to then to say he repented, he he you know had second thoughts on his decision, and then yeah, I agree, it doesn't doesn't sit right. Uh, and doesn't sound like the Jesus we know. No, that's the first I've heard of that. When I read all this, like racism doesn't even cross my mind. Like it's not even a thought. I don't know why. I'm not sure. I think the context gets lost on us because of the 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 Gentile verse, Jewish verse, or like we we don't recognize the different um, people groups of that of that time. We, yeah. especially, we just see um, Gentile, Jewish. We just sort of lump those two together. It was either pre-Jesus, so Jewish, Gentile, and we sort of, I think, just go just Jewish, just straight. They're just straight Jewish, regardless of whether they're Jewish, Gentile, whatever. And then after Jesus, just all Christian. Like I, I think, in the in its simplest terms, we just think of it as very simplistic, and we don't actually mm. comprehend or understand or even just know. Um, that were that there were different groups moving around at the time, different political things happening, and all these different prejudices that were that were happening. It probably could be said that the disciples might have been oh, racist. Yeah. If I'm being completely honest as a newbie and coming into faith and starting to read this, when I first came into it, I thought Jewish people were completely separate. Like, if that makes sense, like I thought it was a whole. I didn't know Jewish people were. In this, I don't know how to explain it, but mm. I just thought it was completely separate. I was so shocked. 
thought Jewish was kind of its own religion. It was like its own. I had no idea it was even. Christianity part one. Like, I had no idea. Mm. So that was quite a shock at the start. Mm. So I think I'm still like wrapping my head around that side of it. I won't keep us in suspense too much longer. I watched a bunch of TikTok responses to this TikTok because I figured it was probably helpful to have several thoughts in my back pocket as we approach this topic. One person wanted to point out that the word that Jesus uses here for dog is not the typical word you would use, but is more like puppy. So there's almost like a a tinge of affection as he says that word, um, which is an interesting thought. I don't know whether that means a lot more, but the word there is not as brutal as it could have been. Um, one commentator I was reading said that he thinks Jesus said this in a very playful tone, which we can't pick <laughs> up from the text. That may just be dreaming, but that also could totally be true. Mm. Um, I think what is the most important or best response is to look at the entire context of Jesus's ministry. Jesus's ministry, as we looked back in chapter 10, actually, when he sent out his disciples on a mission to just Israel, His entire mission was, I'm coming to the people of Israel who are expecting the Messiah. Now, my plan is for the world, for the world's salvation, but first I'm here for the Jews, and then we're going to extend it to the Gentiles. That's always been the plan. And when this woman comes to him, she is effectively saying, hey, jump ahead in your mission. Come for the Gentiles now as well. And Jesus is like, I am the Jewish Messiah. I'm here to fulfill their expectations first before we extend it to everyone. And so this woman comes to him and says, hey, before it is my time, before it's the time of the Gentiles, I would like the blessings now. And Jesus says, it's actually not time for you yet. And she perseveres and says, it may not be time, but can I have a foretaste? Can I have the crumbs? Because I know eventually I'm going to get a seat at this table, but right now I need you. And that type of faith and perseverance, I think, really comes across to Jesus as a great moment of faith. And so he goes, you're right. Like, yes, I'm not yet here just for the Gentiles because I have a mission to fulfill first. Mm. But you're right. You do deserve even the crumbs right now, the foretaste of something you're about to be a co-partner in. You could also argue he's not specifically calling her a dog as well. You can actually, yes. You can and you can't. It, it, it Jesus responds in this way, but never outright says that you are the dog that I'm referring to. Because no one, no one's, it's that like sort of playful metaphor of like, no one's actually necessarily specifically saying anything about the, uh, like directly anything about the other. Mm. It's not, they're not, it's mm. not necessarily direct name calling or whatever. It's just sort of almost skirting, skirting around it is really the, even despite, despite what that, like the, the debate is and our thoughts on it, is that really the point that we're meant to be taking away anyway? Like what's, what is the point of, of even thinking that about it with, with all, with all this that we have in front of, in front of us. And it's still mind boggling of like, why, why, why getting so, why, like, why is that discussion, discussion happening and getting so hung up on, Mm. on that Mm. when that's not even, the point of, um, or the even the outcome. It's no. not like Jesus completely denied her, ignored her, and then went on his way and just left her. Jesus still granted her request and praises her faith. Mm. And so, whatever this interaction means and is, it is Jesus saying, "You have amazing faith." Yes, I am meant to be here for the children of Israel first, but 
you are included in this because of your great faith. And then I think it is right to move on to the feeding of the 4,000. Because as I said before, this is now in Gentile territory. These 4,000 men, so once again, we're looking at a much bigger crowd once you include women and children. This is now in Gentile territory. So while it sounds on its face a very, very similar miracle, you're like, ah, you fed 5,000, then you fed 4,000. That's sort of just like, get a new trick, Jesus. But it's like (laughs) the context is entirely different now. Even down to like the word they used for baskets back in the feeding of the 5,000 was a very Jewish word, like a specific type of Jewish basket. And now they're using a word for basket, which is a really general word that would be found throughout the rest of the empire, not specifically in Israel. And so Jesus, having had this interaction with a Canaanite, now feeds a whole group of Gentiles. His disciples are always forgetting food. (laughs) (laughs) They are the classic person who rocks up to a church supper and uh, didn't bring any money, and so you shout them, and then every week you shout them because they never bring money. (laughs) And you're like, at what point are you going to pay me back? They just need to remember. They just need better, like, event planning skills. That <laughs> I was just thinking the whole time, can they use the leftovers from the last one? Yeah. <laughs> the baskets of leftovers. <laughs> I don't know how well any of their food travelled. <laughs> Jesus, we've got Tupperware containers filled with the leftover fish and, and, and bread. Is there a significance in, I know you kind of touched on it before, but why bread and fish? Like, why those two specific foods? Were they considered cheap then or like a luxury food like is there any significance behind it or just that's what they had i don't know if there's any significance apart from the fact that those are just staple foods of the time Mm. um they're also ideal foods for short journeys so yeah a small little loaf of bread would keep for a few days and was easy to travel fish were very easy to come by given that all these stories happen on different parts of the lake Mm. like they just keep bouncing around to different parts of the lake, but they're always close to a source of fish. So Mm. I can't think of any significance beyond that. There's the potential that the loaves kind of represent the manna that falls from heaven in Exodus, or maybe even represents some of the miracles we see in Two Kings when Elisha, one of the prophets of God, does a similar miracle where with 20 loaves he feeds 100 people. And so I think loaves and bread have a bit of a biblical history but apart from the fact that these were just very staple normal foods that people had on them and jesus could then multiply where does um where does jesus get his money to buy this stuff he's busy doing all this stuff not working um that's a good question jesus as we find out later is supported by others to do this ministry and so Mm. it sounds like he's not like working from home no (laughs) no so we know that (laughs) there was a few older women who were part of his kind of wider disciple group that the bible explicitly Mm -hmm. says supported him financially um we get the impression that peter kind of gave a lot of resources for Mm. what jesus was doing in terms of allowing that ministry to continue and so jesus is really supported by others so that he can keep doing this and then we continue the the Jesus tour of uh, Israel as he then heads to uh, Magadan. Jesus on tour. Um, <laughs> which is kind of back to more Jewish area. Um, I thought it was interesting that Magadan was probably a variant spelling of Magdala, as in Mary Magdalene. So probably her hometown mm. or home region is where they're off to next as we head to chapter 16.
This is another demanding of Jesus and demanding to know who he is and, and giving us a giving us a sign. Mm. And that sort of harks back to when they tried this before. And is this sort of getting them to trap Jesus into a corner so they can condemn him to death? Or is this a legitimate, I actually want you to prove that you are who you, who you say you are? It's hard to read true intentions through text like this. Mm. Yeah. But Jesus is pretty clear that he keeps giving them signs and they refuse to listen to him, which is why a few chapters ago he went, forget it. The only sign you're really going to get is the sign of Jonah. It's going to be my death and resurrection. <laughs> That'll be the sign that will finally get through to you. Before we get into this one, can I just ask like, for a brief description of what a Pharisee and a Sadducee, is it Sadducee? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is? Um, so a Pharisee was kind of your local religious leader. Um, they were involved mm-hmm. in all your local synagogues. They were quite well loved by the people, even though they heightened the standard that people had to be held to. Um, whereas your Sadducees were more of your religious elite who mostly only hung out in Jerusalem. Them and the Pharisees didn't super get along, which is why it's interesting at the beginning of 16 to see them united in questioning Jesus. And so Mm -hmm. the one thing that can unite these differing religious parties is uh, not agreeing that Jesus is the Messiah, which is unfortunate for both of them. Um, Mm -hmm. But hopefully that's a helpful enough differentiation between them. Yeah, thank you. Sort of like looking for signs and and then also not seeing the signs that were already there um, sort of uh, reminds me of a sort of metaphor sort of story sort of thing of like you're driving in a car park and you're sort of and you're, and you're sort of running a bit late, and you're like, I just need to find a car park. I just need to find a car park. You're like, Lord, give me a, give, just give me a space. Give me, give me a sign. And then someone pulls out, and you're like, Don't, no, don't worry, Lord, I found one. <laughs> and you're just like, You've, you've missed the point. <laughs> like, you know, even, even when it's so blatantly in your face, mm. you could still, and that, like, you know, application to us, you can still miss that sign you can still miss what god is trying to give to you say to you um even if it's right smack bang in the face we sometimes like no don't worry lord we got this it's spot just opened up i saw another example of that on tiktok the other day i didn't mean to bring tiktok up so much in this episode i didn't Uh, know you're into tiktok uh, my wife (laughs) is and so she (laughs) saves a bunch of videos to show me and one of her love languages is showing me videos on tiktok um anyway (laughs) it's an atheist sitting at a car and he's like I could prove that God isn't real because if he was real, that he would make lightning strike in three, two, one. And then as he says one, big bolt of lightning strikes right near him. And he's just then like looks at the camera being like, I'm going to have to reevaluate some things. (laughs) 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 Then we reach what is probably the, I don't want to say the climax of the book of Matthew, but the climax of the first half of the book of Matthew. Like we've uh, spent the first 15, 16 chapters trying to figure out who is Jesus or more specifically, everyone around Jesus is trying to figure out who is Jesus. And we reach here in the middle of the book, the absolute climax of Peter finally for the first time saying the words, you are the Messiah. Like the narrator in the book of Matthew has called Jesus the Messiah a few times, but this is the first time those words have been on the lips of a character. So again, they really didn't know, or they were really on the fence. Like this goes back to when they're walking on the water. They really, it, it still baffles me. It's like they really didn't know or they really didn't get it. And understand, like we were saying before, a bit a bit more slow to the uptake. And 
we have a lot of more context to it and this is their sort of this is their their first time and actually being in the moment so it can all be very different in their own minds but i still think like despite everything jesus has been giving you this is the first time you go no you must be the messiah but it was the first time they thought it or just the first time they voiced it mm. um, regardless we really hit the climax here of hey we figured out who jesus is i only took us 16 chapters but here we are <laughs> We know that Jesus is the Messiah. I don't think I've asked this before, but what is a Messiah? Is that just leader, like king? It's a great question, like genuinely a really helpful question. Yeah. The word Messiah or Christ just means anointed one, which mm-hmm. doesn't really add a lot more to the definition. So in the Old Testament, priests, prophets, and kings were all anointed with oil as a sign that they were being entrusted by the people or by God for their task. And so when this term Messiah started coming about, it sort of started combining all of the elements of these different anointed people. And so the Messiah Mm -hmm. was going to be seen as a priest, a prophet, and a king. They were going to sort of fulfill all of these roles as the normal anointed roles from the Old Testament. Okay, because I've heard about it. I was talking to a friend um at work and they're Mormon and they were talking about Messiah and prophets and a lot. Yep, probably. There are. And I just was not sure. <laughs> it's a great question because I just I I personally just take the word Messiah for granted. Like you don't stop I, I personally don't stop and think of the exact meaning of Messiah. I just know that Jesus is the Messiah. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I feel like I need like a glossary of all the terms of like the titles and what they get called. <laughs> But that's what Loki is for. So. <laughs> I have your glossary. He's the walking glossary. <laughs> is Peter the first? Do we know if Peter's the first to voice this? Is is the significance that Peter is the first? Or that Peter's, as we find out, the rock? So he's that integral part. Peter is the first person in the Gospels that ever says it about Jesus mm. in terms of his disciples. And so I think we are meant to view Peter as if not the leader of the group of disciples, at least the spokesperson is mm. at least the character that the author puts the thoughts of the group into their mouth and makes them say it. But I also think we are meant to see him as the leader of this group. And Jesus responds significantly to Peter's proclamation. So Peter says, hey, I can encapsulate who you are in a word. You are the Messiah. Mm. And then Jesus goes, wow, I can now encapsulate who you are in a word, Peter, which means rock because you're going to be the rock on which I build this new community of God. And so Peter is given a really special role here at the beginning. Mm. It's interesting how they, in their in their first response to this all, that they listed a whole bunch of people who could be mm. the son of man first before they then say, no, it's actually, despite all these people that we may have thought or other people have said, maybe the son of man, John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, Jeremiah, other prophets that they then say it's it's actually Jesus, and it's it's sort of like we know, but it's confirming any any other suspicion um, or getting rid of any other suspicion, mm. and, and purely just saying no, Jesus is the Messiah. He um, then sternly warned the disciples not to tell anyone. Mm. Why? I think it's the the same as what we've talked about a few times now, actually, which is the misunderstanding. Mm. Peter has realized that Jesus is the Messiah, but as we'll find out in the next story, Peter doesn't actually realize what the Messiah is meant to do. Mm. He just knows that Jesus is it. And so if you take that little example of 
Peter knowing his title but not what it means and then you broaden that out to a whole population, it's not quite time for the whole population to bring all their misunderstandings about Mm. the role of the Messiah, which could drastically change the outcome of what Jesus is actually seeking to do, Mm. which is, as he's about to explain, that his role as the Messiah is to die. Mm. But I think before we get to that bit, we should talk a little bit more about the authority that is suddenly invested in Peter because of what he realizes, because I think that is a significant topic to talk about. Whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. Mm-hmm. Yep. Like there's these. There's a lot of big, big things thrown around here. For me, for me anyway, it's like okay, you will be given the, the like you you will be the the rock I will build my church on, or uh, power of hell will not conquer it. Like great. You know, the keys to the kingdom of heaven, great. And then sort of, this is where I get a little bit confused. Mm. Whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. There's a lot of power he's giving Peter. But does that then mean, this could be stupid of me saying, but does that then mean if Peter did anything or permitted anything, anything is like, it just permits one random thing. Is that then permitted in 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 heaven? And then the other question of like, can Peter really do that? I thought all that permission that only strictly came from like all that permitting strictly only came from Jesus or God. Or I think two things in answer to your question. Mm. Firstly, I think we're meant to read it as Peter is meant to take his lead from what is permitted in heaven, mm. and therefore permit that in this new earthly church community. So he's meant to take his lead from heaven. Um, the second thing that's actually probably really important is that this authority which is given to Peter here is then actually given to all of the disciples later on. Mm. So in Matthew 18, we'll see this given to all of the disciples, not just Peter. Mm-hmm. Um, in John 20, we'll see the same thing, but that's a different book. Our Catholic friends like to see this as the moment where Jesus sort of establishes kind of the papal line or the the reason that there needs to be a pope because mm-hmm. you have one figure with this authority and you need that in the church to continue this role but Jesus broadens it out to way more than just Peter and we do see Peter fulfill this role going forward in the book of acts he's one of the leading voices that realizes that the gentiles need to be included in the church community he is the voice that says one of the ways to include them in the community is to do away with all these dietary restrictions Mm. which we've just seen Jesus talk about briefly. And so the terms to bind and loose, when we look at other usages of that word in Jewish writings, it always means to have the authority to declare what is and what is not permissible. And so I think sometimes when we read about Peter having the keys to the kingdom, we think about, oh, he gets to decide who comes in and who goes. But that's not Mm. actually the role. He's just a steward with the keys. He's not actually the master with the keys. And Mm. so he's been given a lot of authority to make decisions in the early church community about what is right and wrong, but he's still not the master in that community. And he gets things wrong. Like Mm. we see literally in the next story, Peter's going to be rebuked. Mm -hmm. We see Paul rebuke Peter for his wrongful attitudes. So Peter is by no means perfect, Mm. but he is going to be a very significant leader in the church community going forward and got to make a lot of big calls in that capacity. And it's empowering him. It's empowering him to be able to, to do that, to take on Jesus's legacy that Jesus is setting up here. And I think it is important to note that Peter is the rock here. He is mm. the rock that the church is going to be built on. The reason it's important to point that out is 
as I alluded to, our Catholic friends see that this rock must be an ongoing ministry. And because of that, Protestants such as ourselves have sort of overreacted and sometimes interpreted this passage weirdly to avoid that. But no, Peter is the rock Jesus will base his church on, but there is nothing in this passage that says that that is an ongoing ministry. It is Jesus is very soon going up to heaven. Peter and the disciples are going to lead this church in its early years and set it up in a way that will hopefully glorify God for a millennia. And that is Peter's role. And it's a role that I think he rises to. He makes plenty of blunders along the way, but that's why there's others also invested with a similar level of authority to him. I just imagine standing there and being given some keys and being like, here's the keys to heaven, like, no pressure. <laughs> Metaphorical <Enjoy."> keys. <laughs> I know, but just I just imagine that it's just such a big, it's just, I'm just, yeah, still thinking it's such a big thing. See, what I think of is uh, the scene in Return of the King, Lord of the Rings, when uh, Gandalf rocks up to Gondor and he's arguing with the steward. And in my mind, I'm like, oh, Peter is the steward of God's kingdom, but he is not the king. Mm. And I <laughs> often think about that scene of like, you do not have that authority, Peter. Like only the king has that authority. And it is a, like like what we're, what we're saying, saying Morgan is like, if you if you put yourself in Peter's shoes, it is a it's, it's a huge huge thing to for Jesus mm. then to turn to you and say to, to say all this, and you know you would sort of be walking away from it like both giddy. I would imagine from excitement because you've been given given this this trust, this empowerment, and everything. But also, then the at least if it was me, the dauntingness of the task mm. and the am I going to get this right? Can't I need, stuff this up. Can't, no, can't stuff this <laughs> up and and everything. And it's Peter, so spoilers. <laughs> he will he will stuff it up. <laughs> <laughs> That's really rough. <laughs> well, <laughs> denies him three times. Yep, and is literally about to be called Satan by Jesus, so Mm -hmm. we should probably head to that story. Um, As we head to that story, uh, there's the little phrase that says, from that time on, Jesus began to. And as I said in one of our early episodes, this is one of those markers in the Gospel of Matthew that shows we've entered a new phase. So we've been in a phase of the Gospel of Matthew where everyone is trying to figure out who is Jesus. And now that we've figured that out, Peter has declared, we move on to a brand new phase of the Gospel of Matthew. Mm. And in this new phase, most of Jesus's teaching is private instruction to his disciples because it's about, hey, what is about to happen now with the fulfillment of my mission and plan on earth? And so we move out of uh, figuring out the person of Jesus stage into really the road to Jerusalem is about to start hardcore as we head slowly towards Jerusalem Mm. because that's the end game. And this new section opens with Jesus being very, very clear and predicting his death and explaining that that is the plan. And it's the first time he's mentioned that in Matthew. And and, I mean, my version here says he plainly Mm. starts to describe describe this and 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 go into it there's no metaphors there's no parables no different sort of stories to utilize to be able to explain it's like nope this is what's going to happen and you can understand peter's response in this of and especially uh, and, and and i'm sure he wasn't the only person who was to respond in a similar way this this person that's come into your life has has taught you that is beloved by by many has you've seen so many different signs and miracles you've spent so much time with him and then it's like a loved one that then turns around to, to say that in order for you to get this this promotion at your job i'm gonna have to die and you're like what <laughs> no hang on what it, you know it's it's like 
to, to put it in our own context, like it's it's a it's a really big thing. And for us, we go yes, we know he needs to 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 fulfill everything and what he's given us for us here today, reading it and listening. But to them, this would have been heartbreaking. Mm. And you can see that in Peter's response, mm. like he says, "Never, Lord." Um, in other translations, he says, God forbid mm. that this should happen to you. Or in others, it says, may God be more gracious to you than what you expect. Like Peter does not want to accept that this is the plan. He's figured out Jesus is the Messiah, but he doesn't like the plan for the Messiah. In um, verse 17, when Peter first declares that Jesus is the Messiah, he says, this has been revealed to you by my father in heaven. Like he really puts the origin of this mm. thought into the hands of his father as like, you've already realized this supernaturally. Mm. But now as we get to Peter trying to rebuke Jesus, Jesus then says, actually, the origin of this thought that you've had is Satan. Mm. So he's not saying you're possessed, but he is saying, hey, the thought that you've just had of trying to rebuke me and say this isn't the plan, that thought originates with Satan and I can't have that around me, get Mm. behind me. And how heart-wrenching that would have been. How like devastating and how almost bad you would have felt of seeing Jesus cast out demons, do all these things, these things being and and for and for Peter being on 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 Jesus' side with all this and and doing it all. And then for the your teacher, your friend to turn around to you going, be gone, Satan, mm. get away from me. You're like, what that would have been heartbreaking. Yeah, huge. But to Peter's credit, Peter doesn't just turn around, flee, go, what on earth are you talking about, Jesus? There isn't this big argument, debate. Like, there's not this big um, thing. Peter still still follows, still commits himself to be a disciple of Jesus. This isn't, despite, despite all this happening, he is still there. Lockie, I think you know what I'm about to ask. <laughs> <laughs> is it going to be a definition question? <laughs> what does tra- what's a transfiguration? <laughs> comes from the, the Greek word that where we also get the word metamorphosis. Um, basically, it means to be changed in form. So it means to be changed mm. in some way. I guess my big question with the transfiguration is why? Mm. Why, why? Why does this occur? Why does this, why does this happen? Why does it need to? I think the transfiguration happens and is recorded to show the role of the Messiah is even more than we thought. So we hit the the climax of this section of Matthew, which is Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus instantly starts teaching about the role of the Messiah, which is actually to die. And then we have this transfiguration moment, which I think elevates the person and the Messiah even higher than the people were expecting, even higher than Peter, James, and John, who go up the mountain, expected of the Messiah. And what I mean by that is I think we see three reasons in this story of the transfiguration to view Jesus as more than a man, more than a holy man blessed by God, but Mm. as God. Mm. Now, I think those three reasons are, firstly, like he is transfigured, he's changed in form before them. That instantly shows that he is not just human. Mm. Like there is more to Jesus than just being a mere human because suddenly his appearance is radiantly different. Secondly, he then appears... With Moses and Elijah, Moses represents the Old Testament law. Elijah represents the Old Testament prophets. Mm. And there is Jesus above them both. He is above these Old Testament figures and he is above the law and prophecies that they represent. And then thirdly, God from heaven itself declares, this is my son 
And as we've talked about in an earlier episode, to claim something is your son is actually to claim that it has the same image as you. To claim fatherhood over something is to claim that you and your son are very, very similar. You almost reflect each other because you have the same properties as your father. And so we in three moments of changed appearance, superiority over law and prophets, and God directly from heaven declaring this to be his son, we see the Messiah is more than a man, more than an anointed priest, an anointed prophet, an anointed king. He is something more. And we know that something more is that Jesus is God himself. And I think this is the first moment in the gospel where we see Jesus as more than just a great man. We see him that there is the potential that he is God himself. In just that, that chapter before, we get them realizing who Jesus is. And then we now get this is now the absolute proof. Mm. This is without this is showing them without a doubt this is who I am. And it's it and it's interesting. I think it's taking a taking a stab here. I think Jesus is waiting for the for them to realize and have faith about who he is. And then he proves it rather than having rather than being the other way around. And he does prove it. Like in 2 Peter, the the book written by Peter, who is here in this moment, he points to the transfiguration as the moment he always thinks about as the proof he needs that Jesus is Lord. Mm. Like he points to that as his experiential proof. So why just only a select few of people went up? Why wasn't it the the uh, everyone? Was it that's just how it happened, or was well, it? Well, it was the inner circle that Jesus took up. Uh, like John, James, and Peter have already been clearly the inner circle hmm. for Jesus. He took just the inner circle up. I mean, maybe he did take the whole twelve up because suddenly Judas probably isn't going to betray the man that he just realized is hmm. God. But he takes just the inner circle. Yeah, and maybe the inner circle was ready. Hmm. Maybe it was it was out of a, a, a readiness. Lucky. We hear about Peter in this story doing something interesting. Do you want to maybe explain why or why you think? That I think is? this is classic Peter putting his foot in his mouth. Of he's seen this glorious vision of Jesus, and he has no idea how to respond. And so, potentially from some misplaced desire to be hospitable, he's like, "Oh, I'll build a tent for all of you. I'll build three different tents. Mm. What a way to celebrate this glorious moment!" But I suspect he's more just overcome and trying to say something or anything that comes to mind. Jesus is like, "No, that's that's not necessary." <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Peter, but no. <laughs> That sort of fear of needing to do the right thing and by doing, by sort of doing it, you're sort of like bumbling around and like it's mm. not actually necessary. Just just be present. I wonder what um Jesus was talking to. Like what what do you, what does what does Moses and Elijah and Jesus talk about in that moment? Like the weather. The weather, like, oh how you going? <laughs> What's been happening? Like, you know, just do they just do general pleasantries <laughs> between each other? Like, I wonder whether Moses and Elijah were just excited to be there they're like this is so such an honor to be here in this moment get excited mm. i've been preparing for a sermon in john and in john 8 jesus says abraham looked forward to the moment when i would come mm. and i wonder whether it's similar for moses and elijah they looked forward to the moment the messiah would come and now that they get to be there and experience it they might just be like how great is this mm. Is there any significance why it's it's specifically moses and elijah as i said before i think they represent the law and the prophets. Mm. I think that is the only real significance to draw from it. Moses wrote almost all the law. He's the most obvious figure associated with the law. 
Elijah is often seen as one of the greatest of the prophets. Mm. Not to t- not to tell anyone. That's that's sort of like similar harking back to when he was saying, but don't tell anyone that he's the Messiah. Mm. Um, not to let this sort of get out of control. However, until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And I love that because it's one of the secrecy moments from Jesus that explicitly says what we assume every other time he says it. Like mm. every other time he says, don't tell anyone, we as Christians assume he means, oh, until you actually write it down in a gospel and tell everyone. Yeah, because <laughs> we're, we're here reading it. <laughs> yeah, and so he makes it very explicit at this exact moment that all of this is to be told, mm. all of this is to be taught, just not yet. And then they come down the mountain. And do you remember what happened when Moses came down the mountain after receiving the Ten Commandments? The Israelite people were worshipping false idols. Mm. So Moses comes down from this like mountaintop experience to see spiritual conflict going on in his people. And I think we're meant to see a, a similarity of as Jesus returns down from the mountain, he enters a, spin of, uh, he enters a scene of spiritual conflict mm. with his disciples who until this moment have been driving out demons on their own, failing to do so. I thought it was really interesting that this demon-possessed man, um, some translations say that he's suffering uh, from epilepsy, but the exact word being used here is to be affected by the moon. And so when I ran this by Emily earlier on this morning, she was like, oh, so he's a werewolf. Yeah, I was just thinking that. (laughs) So he's a werewolf? No, I think to be affected by the moon is used elsewhere for insanity or to be a lunatic. Um, mm. I think the rest of the symptoms are consistent with epilepsy of having fits. Yes. But it's just, I just thought it was a fun little side <laughs> comment. <laughs> <laughs> werewolf. Are there were werewolves? What? No, hang on. <laughs> hang on. Anyway, so the disciples were unable to heal this man. Jesus says that is a result of their lack of faith and then frees this person from demon possession. Pretty classic Jesus. We've seen that a dozen times now, mm. but he does walk down from the mountain into a moment of conflict as Moses did. Hey, Morgan, could you read verse 21 for us? I can. There isn't a verse 21. What do you mean? I see verse 22 right there. Isn't it just the verse beforehand? No, it goes from 20 to 22. What? Well, that's weird. What? Someone's taken out a verse out of our Bibles. Is that a typo? <laughs> Well, it's also in my Bible, if that at all helps. In some Greek manuscripts, there is a Matthew 17, verse 21. It reads, But this kind of demon does not go out except by prayer and fasting, which is exactly the same as Mark 9, 29, from a similar story. And so the assumption is that at some point, someone included Mark 9, 29 in this portion of Matthew 17 to further and better explain why the disciples couldn't cast out this particular demon. But at earliest manuscripts and almost all of our manuscripts don't have that verse there, Mm. which means it was probably included at some later point. The person who put the verse numbers in the Bible clearly used a copy Mm. that had that included. Is that like in other areas in the Bible or is that just a random thing in this No, there's there's a few other points. Um, In fact, I think there's one next episode um, where there are verses that, when we read it, it appear to be taken out because there's a verse number and then no verse there, but is mm. inclusions of other bits from other bits of the Bible that have just found themselves weirdly in the middle of Matthew when most of the old manuscripts do not have them. That was a third trick question right there, Josh. 
<laughs> For those counting at home, yes, that's the third trick question I have asked. I mean, sorry to bring up John 8 again. It's just because I'm writing a sermon on it. The first 12 verses of John 8, um, you'll see there's little brackets that say, this story is not found in the oldest manuscripts. Mm. And so it's another moment mm. where there's this whole story that people have loved and written. Um, in John 8, it's the story of the woman caught in adultery that Jesus refuses to throw the stone, like refuses to stone her, and then everyone else doesn't stone her either. That's also not in the earliest manuscripts. And as Christians, I think we always need to go back to the earliest possible copies. Mm-hmm. And there's amazing consistency across all those early copies. But every so often, another verse slips into a manuscript somewhere and you're like, oh, that's a bit weird and interesting. But you can almost always find where that verse is meant to be. So for verse 21 here, the verse that somehow got slipped into some manuscripts of Matthew is actually just from Mark 9.29. This translation is trying to be true to the to our earliest original copies of it, yeah. but we're still representing what someone did translate it or what someone did add it to. So it's the quote-unquote, like the representation of the best of both worlds. I think how, so we have, we as Christians try to go for the earliest possible manuscripts, the most well-supported manuscripts to figure out what the Bible is saying. And if you do any research into manuscripts of the Bible, you will find that 99.99% of the Bible is almost locked in stone. Like every single available manuscript from every corner of the Roman Empire at that time is in complete agreement of what's going on. We also Mm -hmm. have a situation where several hundred years into Christianity existing, someone went through the Bible and assigned verse numbers to everything. That's not in original manuscripts. They assigned verse numbers. Those verses have become so entrenched in the Christian worldview that when we then translate and realize that, oh, here's this well-established verse number, but that doesn't line up with anything from this original text, we still need to be consistent with our verses because they're so well-established now, even though that verse is inaccurate. So this is another example of when tradition takes over. Yeah, a little bit, because the verse numbers are not at all traditional. No. Sorry, uh, very traditional, exact opposite. <laughs> very, very traditional, and in the grand scheme of things, doesn't actually matter. Mm. It's the text that's there, not the number that comes before it. And then we get to the final bit of this chunk we've tried to do in one episode, <laughs> but I wouldn't be surprised if Josh tries to divide this into two episodes. Um, <laughs> and uh, we have this talk about the temple tax. The ending's slightly weird of this little bit, of... of Open the mouth of a fish you mm-hmm. catched, and you will find a large silver coin. Like I'm reading it, like in my bubble, I'm reading it, reading it, reading it. I have to flip the page to get to that section, and then you're like, "What? <laughs> Hang on!" <laughs> it seems very left of field to be all of a sudden. Hang on, no, go out, catch a fish. You won't believe it, but there is a <laughs> silver coin there, <laughs> and then use that to pay the temple tax that I owe. And it's like, is that a weird getting around, <laughs> like paying a a bill like I mean, as Jesus explains, so I mean a bit of a context, mm. every Jew twenty years and older was sort of expected to pay a temple tax every year. And it was obviously Peter and Jesus had not yet paid their temple tax for the year. Um and there was like a moment of patriotism. Like the Jews actually really loved paying their temple tax because it was their way of contributing to the temple. Um but rabbis were exempt from paying this tax. Priests were exempt from paying this tax. And as Jesus points out, as a member of God's very family, he was exempt from paying this tax. But I think Jesus has caused enough controversy and to avoid giving offense, 
he finds another way to pay this tax that is almost God-ordained, God-provided. Here it is in the mouth of a fish. Is is this sort of just saying that um, no matter who you are should pay the temple tax or is it the opposite that we should abolish the temple tax? I think it's the opposite. I think Jesus is saying, hey, as a member of God's family, I don't get taxed by God. Like that's the way tax works is a ruler would never tax through own direct family. And eventually we know that we are all going to be included via adoption into God's family. And so this mm-hmm. is really a redundant system, but Jesus is happy to, for this one occasion, just perform a miracle, pay the tax. Jesus is sort of saying that unlike kings of the past, God isn't here to conquer his people. I guess maybe. It was more like there was a real joy in contributing. Mm. You could almost liken it to tithing in our modern churches of mm. there is a there is meant to be a great joy of Here's my resources that God has blessed me with. I want to give it to him and give it back. And Jesus is saying there's no expectation of that because I am God's son. Mm. He doesn't expect me to pay that. But there is still a joy in giving back. Mm. That was going to be my next <laughs> question of like, how does this fit in with the whole tithing thing, it's, especially in our modern church? I think a temple tax is different to modern tithing. Modern tithing is closer to like the generous giving they would give to the temple out of their own free will more than like a an obligation to contribute. Yeah, because the tithing is not you have to. It's if you so wish to put back into mm. God's, God's church. Yeah, like churches don't send around debt collectors to go uh, make sure people have paid their tithes, mm. which is what the temple tax was. Yeah, no, that makes sense. But people could give free will offerings at the temple at any point to thank God for his provision, and that's what we as Christians do when we tithe. Yeah. And that's the weird story that we wrap up this chunk of narrative with. So next week we jump into another sermon of Jesus and a bit more narrative because it's a very short sermon. So much that we've just gone through and mm. I th- and I think I think we can all all agree that it's just it's just been great just to unpack every you know every single thing that we've just we've just read here and I don't know about you guys but every if there's no one little thing here that I could probably just specifically say that that's that's the standout that there's so many different things that we've we've talked about we've unpacked that we've defined even even just just through definitions that were like oh yeah that's that's really that's really good and oh I didn't I didn't know that not that nothing stands out that everything st- everything stands out everything is your takeaway everything is yeah. and it's a it's a slight cop out but I think what I appreciate is knowing that this is meant to be a mini climax in the gospel. Mm. We finally have Jesus's identity out loud as the Messiah. And then we actually have his role, which is to die. We didn't spend a lot of time unpacking that because it's just assumed for us. But for a first time reader, wait, the Messiah is meant to die. And then to have this transfiguration moment and realize the Messiah is even way more than we thought. There's just like quite, there's the building blocks have happened very fast in this chunk it's taken us a long time, but suddenly in a very short amount of time, we've been given so much information about Jesus and his role, and that is so pivotal and important for us as Christians to realise. I think I've just had a bit of a reminder of stepping out in faith, but, yeah, I've just learnt a lot in this, and I feel like, yeah, we've been getting to a build-up, and I'm excited now that we're at this point. Um, and it was good to have a bit of a break to 
ponder on all this and think about it and come back hungry again like this. So I think it's just really cool. Yeah, and I hope everyone else has, has had the same feeling of realizing that this is this build up that's that's happening, and that we we are we are we are going through it, and we are getting getting everything as as Jesus as intended, and we're really ramping up. But not only like ramping up to like sort of more like the climax of the story and, and everything it's leading to, but just being able to understand better and getting that that context from start to finish and not just jumping into a specific thing, just like mm. the disciples were getting. I hope everyone else is sort of getting that journey that the disciples are, are also undertaking as well, that we are also receiving that same journey as we go through this together. 81% of people that watch this are not subscribed. Can you believe that? That only, only 20%, one of them. <laughs> one of them, only 20% of people that actually watch this are actually subscribed. So I encourage you, everyone, that if you if you like this, if you watch this, if you listen to this every week, subscribe. Get it in. Subscribe. Get into your into your feed because it will it helps you as a reminder that each week that when it pops up, it will pop up every Monday. We release this so that you can listen to it and share it with a friend. Mm. Share it with someone mm. someone that that you know someone someone different. You may have shared this in the past to someone, but. Think about who else might in your life that might might get this, and 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 it might just be someone very random or someone very close to you. Just share share it around because we'd love this to to spread to everyone because we want the Bible and its message to spread to to everyone. As like always, you can find this episode uh, to or on all your favorite podcast uh, platforms wherever you listen to it. And don't forget to keep up to date with all our social medias, Facebook, Instagram, and everything. We've got TikTok where we're, we're slowly posting things on TikTok as well. So stay tuned for more on, on TikTok if you haven't uh, seen that or already. And just leave leave your comments, send in your questions if you've got any at the end, because uh, we're sort of past this halfway point. At the end, we're going to try and do a Q&A sort of episode where we get to answer questions that we have that are unanswered, but also questions that you at home might also have. So send in send in your questions if you've if you've got them. Also, we'd just love to hear hear your feedback and anything that you got out of out of this. I know that we all got stuff out of it, but what did you get get out of this? And leave leave a review because that really helps uh, the the uh, the algorithm and getting us getting us seen. All right, so as we uh, wrap this up, I'll just end us in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you that we can come back here today, that we are able to once again delve into, into your word, that we're able to read it and just really dig our teeth into it, Lord, that we're able to discuss it and learn just a little bit more about, about you, Lord, and that we're able to share it with everyone here today, everyone watching and everyone listening, Lord. I just pray over just everyone present and that you're with them forever through everything that they are they are doing and that you they are doing your will here on earth in Jesus mighty name I pray amen amen thank you thank you you two for for joining us and we'll see you next week yeah we're back we're back baby bye a mustard seed creative production <laughs>